Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the call to arms in Ukraine. Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky announcing an international brigade to fight invading Russian forces. And Ukraine says hundreds of people have already volunteered to sign up. Foreign volunteers from the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada, too, saying, sign me up. I want to do this. Now, there are lots of concerns, questions about this. What would these volunteers be doing? Do they have the training to actually make a difference? What is the law around doing this now we've got some great guests coming up on this this morning have a listen to this here now this is ole heleniyuk he is a ukrainian man living recently in vancouver and he is on his way home now he said his relatives his friends back home in ukraine are fighting to defend their country he could not stay on the sidelines here he is talking to jill bennett this week tomorrow in the morning i'm flying to vienna austria and then uh, from Austria, I will I will be heading to the border. I will go to to, to my hometown, and then I will uh, join my friends who coordinate the supplies to the frontier. And uh, when I am called to serve my country, I will do this, of course. Okay, Ole Hanlaniyaluk speaking earlier this week to Jill Bennett. Now, one of his stops before he left British Columbia, left Canada. He wanted to stock up on some supplies to help in the effort there in Ukraine. And one of his first stops was the MD Charlton store in Victoria. Let's check in with Alec Rossa. He's the president of MD Charlton. They're the largest supplier of police equipment in Canada. Hey, Alec. Hey, good morning, Mike. Slava Ukrainu. Glory to Ukraine. Right on, man. I love it. You, you, have, you have family in Ukraine, right? Yes, I have approximately over 40 relatives in Ukraine, uh, basically fighting every day. Fortunately for me, though, uh, most of them live in the west. They're about an hour's north of Lviv. But uh, one actually is in Odessa, and uh, prior to the conflict starting, and uh, he told me, oh, we're going to be okay, and we're going to stay here with my family and everyone. Well, things have escalated since then. He's now calling me and my cousin that lives in Fairmont, B.C., and saying, I've got to get my wife, I've got to get my children, I have to get everybody out. And because wow. uh, they're bombing the seaport of Odessa right now. So it's, uh, things are escalating quickly. Yeah, they really are. Hey, Alec, tell me a little bit about your company there, MD Charlton. There's a very unique company you're running there supplying. You supply supplies to uh, police departments, right? Yeah, MD Charlton Company. We've been in business for over 42 years, actually, uh, supplying all the police and the military in Canada, coast to coast, with everything you would think of. Everything yeah. from lethal equipment to non-lethal to clothing to footwear to you know, protective equipment, um, flashlights, footwear. And our main DCs are located actually in Toronto. Our two largest warehouse for distribution are just in, um, in Mississauga, just outside of Oakville. And we also have offices in Ottawa, 
uh, the basis for the military and for the RCMP. Okay, and the voice of that young guy we just played there, Ole Heleniayuk, who's on his way to Ukraine now. Like, I understand, did he come by your place to pick up some equipment? Is that right? Yes, him and another buddy came by our offices actually um, on Tuesday. They caught the first ferry over. It was sponsored by the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the upper key of uh, New Westminster. And they came over, and uh, actually, I, wasn't, I didn't even know they were coming, really. And they'd come to our offices, and my staff all stepped up and said, well, what do you need? What do you, not, what do you need? What can we do for you? So, yes, he came in, and we spoke. We uh, outfitted him with many, many items that he could take in legally, um, from gloves to footwear. He's going to be taking 12 suitcases full of uh tourniquets and uh, gloves and nylon duty gear and for himself we were able to outfit him with uh, some body armor and uh, some other things that he can take in personally legally but the biggest challenge we're having I'm getting inundated with calls from organizations from groups that they want to buy ballistic helmets they want to buy body arm they want to buy uh, plates and things of that nature and the challenge is is these are all controlled by itar and the united states government and i can get them into the company and because that's what we do we source products and so if the if the government of canada would actually reach out to me actually so i could purchase and secure the products with a purchase order i can get them into the country and actually get them to the people in ukraine or through you know directly through the canadian military and or what a government agency Oh, okay. But yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a little cuckoo around here. Uh, I had another fellow sit in my office from 8 a.m. from the doors of the day we opened till I came in the office two hours later, and he wanted to outfit kit for him and volunteers. And he says there may be up to 36 of them coming from Victoria and across Gee. the country to go to Ukraine and lend their hands and their expertise. They're all ex-veterans. Wow, holy smoke. So, And they want to go to Ukraine and sign up on this international force? Is that right? Yeah, they want to do that. <laughs> so anyway, I spoke with my cousin today that's on the ground in, Oda- in Lviv, and he's saying, I said, so what's the process? How's things happening? And he said, well, as best as he can tell, like he's been actually sworn, my cousins are now territorial police. There's uh, four of my uh, younger cousins. Actually, my youngest one is actually 18, and his name is Orist. He's got his uniform on, and between the four of them, they're patrolling the area of... Uh, uh, just outside of uh, Lviv, which is a Zhokva, and my little village is called um, uh, Turenka. And uh, what they're doing right now is they're actually monitoring to see if there's any subversive activity going on. They're yanking down road signs, and basically, so if they did get it. They, they did get it inundated that uh, that they, the Russians wouldn't know where to go. Uh, the women are packing uh, garments in, in Lviv and sending them to Kiev. But what the pro, what he said's going on is the guys are coming in. Canadians and Americans, and they're landing in Poland, and then they're being taken to Lviv, where they're being documented and and choosing what they're going to do. But most of these guys are going straight to Kiev. They're going straight to the fight. They're Whoa, going- that's am- that's amazing. I was speaking to Alec Rossa. He's the president of the MD Charlton Company. It's a police and military supply company, and his phone's ringing off the hook with people looking for supplies for the fight in Ukraine. Hey, Alec, let me play another clip here for you from another young British Columbia guy who says he wants to go to Ukraine and sign up to fight. His name is Bryson Woolsey from Powell River. Here he is speaking to Czech News in Victoria. It's the right thing to do. I don't think these people should stand alone in their fight. Uh, When I saw this, it really felt like 
something right to do, a purpose, right? It's uh, just to go over there and do what I can. Okay, so he says he wants to go over there and do what he what he can, but, you know, Alec, for guys like him, it doesn't sound like he has any military training to speak of that I that I'm aware of. I mean, do you think it's wise for young people who might think like, "Oh, this is a good idea. Maybe I'll go over there." I mean, if you if you have no you have no idea what you're getting into if you're not you don't have any training. Well, you know, Mike, in my opinion, I think they can do so much more here on the ground in Canada, uh, supporting creating Facebook pages and. Uh, basically doing cybersecurity, basically raising money for the Canadian-Ukrainian Red Cross, going yeah. to rallies at the legislature in Vancouver. I know there's, a, uh, there's another rally being held at the legislature, I think March 6th here in Victoria again, I, I believe it's at 1230. Um, you know, just going over there, it, it's chaos right now because right now as of today the unofficial numbers there's been about a million people leave ukraine women and children and elderly and basically yeah. um it, it's just it's just chaos there's, con- there's confusion there's him going over there i, I don't think it's going to be the best use of his time and maybe and for the safety of himself as well so yeah. I, I, I applaud him i do i applaud anybody that's doing this but you know you don't speak the language yeah, yeah. And nobody really speaks Ukrainian. <laughs> I mean, it speaks English in certain areas. So it, it can be very different, especially in the East. Yeah, the other guy we heard from, the first voice we played, the young the young fellow who came to your store to pick up supplies and, and body armor and stuff, Ole Heleniayuk. I mean, that's kind of, I sort of see that as a different category because he's actually a Ukrainian guy who was in in. Uh, Vancouver temporarily and he's going home to fight like his relatives his friends are already fighting so he's going home to defend his own country which I think is a little bit different but your yeah, thoughts and probably with all ahead of as well he was a quartermaster so he's got experience with logistics as well okay that's where he sees himself helping logistically taking supplies that do come into the country via Poland or Romania or some of our neighbors basically there. So that's where he sees himself fitting in and helping. He's actually, as far as I know, I don't believe he's going to the front line in Kiev. He's going to be staying back lines, supporting everybody with supplies, which they desperately, desperately need. Okay, Alec, thank you for coming on to talk about this today. And it's interesting to hear how the, the demands there are up at your store. And uh, hopefully you get all that federal government red tape sorted out on it. I do. Uh, with your help, Mike, and uh, the population of Canada, just please write your MLAs, your MPs, and just, guys, we just need to break down some of the barriers. Okay. And like we'd say in Ukraine, Slavo Kuyin, Haroyu Ukrainu, and they will lay down their souls and bodies for their freedom. All right, welcome back to the show. We're talking about foreign fighters traveling to Ukraine to fight invading Russian forces. They're responding to the call to arms from President Yelensky to come and help defend Ukraine. And we're hearing from Canadians who are saying they want to do this. They want to go to Ukraine. They want to fight. You heard my conversation there with Alec Rasa. He runs a military supply company in Victoria. And he's, yeah, he has people coming to his door uh, looking for equipment. They want to go to Ukraine. Let's check in with Ty. Tyler Wenzel now. Tyler is a uh, Canadian military veteran himself. He's an historian and a lawyer. He works at the Canadian Forces College in Toronto. Hey, Tyler, thanks for coming on. Good day. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for doing this. You wrote a really interesting article. I recommend to the listeners on this. Tyler, what what are the, the law around this? Like, is this legal? Can Canadians go there and legally fight in this war? 
Well, the relevant law here is a statute called the Foreign Enlistment Act. It was passed in 1937 during the Spanish Civil War, when we had 1,700 Canadians who went to fight in Spain. Uh, And it's a law built on keeping Canada neutral. So it prevents Canadians from joining a military of of a country that's at war with a friendly country. So if Ukraine's friendly, and I think we could all pretty universally say that Canada and Ukraine are friendly, then it's completely fine under the statute to join the Ukrainian armed forces. Okay, yeah, and that's sort of been made clear from uh, some comments from from federal officials as well. What about their their status of these fighters when they come home? Like, if they go, let's say they go to Ukraine, they end up fighting in 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 battles over there, and then they come home, would they be considered a, a veteran in Canada? As our laws and regulations presently exist, no, they wouldn't. And this has been an issue for a lot of Canadians who went and fought in the Vietnam War, in the Spanish Civil War, and other conflicts like that. Uh, They're not given the status of veterans if they served outside the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, They don't get the same kind of entitlements. And for some people, that um, that will seem like an obvious conclusion to reach, but it's been a point of contention decades after these conflicts have ended. The Ukrainian Armed Forces might provide some support, some sort of veteran services for, uh, for these foreign volunteers, but we don't know what that might look like yet. Are the, what about the international uh, set of reg- laws? Is this legal under international law for Ukraine to say, we're setting up a, a brigade of foreign volunteers, come to Ukraine, fight for us, join our fight against Russia? Is that legal under international law? Yes, it, it is. There's, there have been uh, UN Security Council resolutions in the past with regards to foreign terrorist fighters, people traveling abroad to join in a terrorist endeavor, but that isn't relevant at all for something like the Ukrainian Armed Forces. It could be relevant for a Canadian who joined some kind of paramilitary organization whose status or in actions might be questionable, but is not a problem at all with regards to the Ukrainian armed forces. Hey, Tyler, just got one minute left here. You're a, a veteran of Canada's armed forces yourself. Do you think that, you know, one thing that I, I find a little concerning is you hear some young people saying, yeah, I want to do this. I want to go and, and help. And they have no military training or background in some cases. Like, do you think that's a wise thing to do? Or could there be other roles for them potentially in a support fashion once they get over there? Definitely. I think that um, anyone who wants to, there's a tremendous amount of risk, obviously, involved in going and fighting a war. If you're showing up without any actual uh, training or background, um, before you make that decision, you might want to take a moment to reflect on your personal skill sets. What are the things that you could do besides taking up arms? that could help the people of Ukraine. Everyone's got some kind of skill set. Maybe you can bring that to bear. You may be more of a liability than you think you are if you have no previous experience. Tyler, thank you for coming on with your thoughts and expertise on it. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Welcome back. Let's dig a little deeper into a story we've covered for you in the last couple of weeks. And this was a surprise line item in the recent provincial budget. It's uh, how the government will collect the sales tax on a used car. Now, here is the deal with this. If you buy a used car in a private sale, the provincial sales tax 
is collectible by the government is 12%. It's a different rate for a car. So 12% sales tax on a used car. Now, here's how this is going to work. This is going to kick in in the fall. When you buy this used car, let's say you buy it on Facebook Marketplace, you must pay the tax on the actual sale price of the vehicle or or the government's estimated value of the vehicle, whichever is higher. Now, why would they do that? Why, why would they do that? The government says they're closing a loophole. Some people are cheating. The tax man. They were putting in fake receipts. Oh, I paid less for this car than I actually did. So I can pay less tax. So this is why they want to do this. Peter Millibar is my guest. Liberal MLA, Kamloops, North Thompson. Peter, thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Okay, Peter, you've really been going after the government on this one. And... Uh, lest, lest any of the listeners feel that we're being one-sided here, I did ask the government to please put up a representative to come on the show today to explain this tax to the listeners. And they declined. They declined to come on the show to do this. I wonder why. I wonder why the government would not want to come on and talk about this tax today. Peter, your thoughts on it. Your thoughts on this well, tax. Well, let's be, uh, you know, there's a couple things. We had the, the member for Vancouver Falls Creek uh, the other day in the chamber uh, say that people are, are evading taxes. Uh, this is not a loophole. It's tax law. The government has made a, a decision to amend that tax law. And by their own budget document, it says it will hurt low and middle income families the most. Okay, Yet they listen. ignored that advice and they're doing that. Okay, let's listen to this exchange in the legislature right now, actually. Okay, so the government did not want to put a, provide a guest for us today, and that's fine. You know, they don't want to talk about this, whatever, I get it. Now, they did, however, put an, an, an MLA up on in the budget debate to explain this tax. So let me play it for you, then I'll get your thoughts on the other side. So this is NDP MLA Brenda Bailey, and this runs about a minute. Now listen carefully to how she explains this tax, okay? And then we'll talk about it on the other side. Listen to this. There's a bit of fudging that goes on because people can't, right? There's no um, clear directive or incentive not to skirt around the edges of the rules on this. And lots of people do it. So what happens is if I'm selling a car for $10,000, and, uh, you know, you agreed to pay that amount, uh, that, that would be, uh, what, $1,200 owed to the government for PST. But what's to say when we have our transfer papers, uh, you ask me, could, could I say that, that I bought it for $5,000? I'll still give you the $10,000. But could I say that I bought it for $5,000 and then I only have to pay $600 PST? And people do this, Right. Folks selling cars feel pressured. They want the deal to go through. They're trying to be friendly. And folks buying cars want, want the deal. And, and people don't really think about this as tax evasion. You know, I, I don't think folks doing this sort of recognize that what they're participating in is, is in fact, fraudulent, right? This is tax evasion. Okay, this is tax evasion. This is what the government is cracking down on. Peter Millibar, your thoughts on that? Well, the government already has the ability, if they feel that a, a transfer is not valued properly, to dig into it. They can phone the seller, they can double-check with the, the purchaser, and then they can track 
fraudulent uh, transactions that way. But I think it just speaks to a broader mindset in this overall budget. You have the, the Premier getting a $40,000 raise, the Cabinet getting a $20,000 raise. And whoa, 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 hang, whoa, 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 hang on. They're not getting a raise. They canceled that hold back, right? Like, no, that's not, well, like, I mean, it's not, well, let's, let's be, let's be fair. I don't think they're getting a raise, a $40,000 raise. Well, they're anyway. acknowledging that they're going to be in deficit and they're removing any financial, uh, uh, penalty if they are in deficit. So right. yeah. <laughs> call it whatever you like. The bottom line is their pay packet will be increased greatly. At the same time, they're ignoring their own budget recommendation that shows that this tax change will directly hurt low and middle income families at a time yeah. of record unaffordability. And and I mean, where do you draw the line? Do you go to a Black Friday sale or a Boxing Day sale and the government's going to start saying, well, just because you got a good deal, we want the tax on the, what the regular retail price is? Um, they're treating everyone like they're a criminal. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that jumps out at me is, and, and I have no doubt that there are probably some people who have cheated the tax man with a fake receipt. Uh, you know, I don't think we should kid ourselves on that. On the other hand, like, what if you're just a shrewd negotiator and you uh, managed to negotiate a smart deal on a used car, or maybe the the buyer or the seller is a, a motivated seller? They need the they need the money quick, so they say, "Fine, I'm going to sell it for less than what it's worth." That's my choice. You know, so they're actually going to they're going to force you to pay more. In that case, they're going to say, well, we don't care what you paid. We're going to pay what we think the car is worth. Your thoughts? Well, well, but only this government could think that uh, the workaround solution, it it saves you money because you can uh, get it appraised, go to a mechanic or or a car appraiser, uh, pay to get it appraised, wait to get it appraised, uh, try to then use that as your justification as to why. Uh, you got the deal you did. But as you say, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, students that travel to Canada and BC to go to school. They're here for three, four years. They buy a vehicle. They need to go home. Uh, their, their studies are done. They sell them quickly uh, for whatever they can get for them. Uh, yeah. There's all sorts of things like that that happen. And essentially the government's saying, we don't care if you get a deal, especially if you're low and middle income family, we're going to penalize you and we're going to treat you like a criminal. Right. But there is a, an appeal process that, as you just outlined there, like if you, if you feel that you, let's, like, let's say the car is in bad shape or needs a bunch of repairs, it's a rust bucket, you know, so you get a cheap, you pay a cheap price for it because it's in bad condition. If the government turns around and says, well, we're going to, we're going to charge you tax on what a higher amount the value what we think is the value of it you can't appeal it though right you can go like you said you can get the car appraised and turn around and fight it right so we Uh, found an example of a 2014 dodge caravan it's about ten thousand dollars in surrey uh book value is around twelve and a half thousand you'd pay an extra hundred and eighty dollars in tax um but you could probably pay about 180 or 200 dollars to go to a mechanic to get it certified that it's worth the 10 uh, how does that save you any money? You still wind up paying it. And let's 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 be real. Who's adjudicating these sales slips when you go into ICBC? Some some uh, you know person that's working that does or doesn't actually truly understand the full values, uh, and it's their discretion whether or not you're telling the truth or not. And if they don't okay. agree with you, they send you away to go do this other step. It's okay. simply incredible how they are defaulting that everyone is a criminal. Right. Okay. So the government is saying they're simply closing a loophole here. They're catching people who are cheating the tax the tax collector. Let me play another clip here for you from this NDP MLA, Brenda Bailey, 
who defended this tax in the budget debate the other day in the legislature. So here she is kind of turning it back on you guys, pointing a finger. I think she might have been going after you directly here, but in the legislature. But here's what she had to say about the liberals attacking this this tax plan. Have a listen. This is simply a question of closing uh, some behavior, closing a loophole on behavior that we want to curb because it's, frankly, it's tax evasion. So to to suggest that this is a new tax is quite a stretch. Um, you know, and I wonder if the other side is suggesting that tax evasion is something that they support. That would surprise me greatly. Um, perhaps they just misunderstand what it is. I, certainly not that we think everyone's a criminal. That's a ridiculous thing to state. Okay, so she says, she tur- she points the finger at you guys and say, oh, you guys are, you're not supporting tax evasion, are you? What do you think of that? Well, well, we're not. But again, there's already a process in place for the exact same sales uh, paperwork to get reviewed. If, uh, if they feel that something doesn't smell quite right, they can phone the seller. They can check with the purchaser, make sure that uh, the values that each are saying they, they paid for the vehicle and paid tax on uh, align. Uh, there's already that process in place. Yeah. Uh, instead, this government's default is, and as I say, their their own budget document on page 91 very clearly says this will uh, have the most impact on low and middle income families, especially in the rural areas. And so, I mean, yeah. they're, they're completely ignoring uh, how impactful this will actually be. Um, and, and it's simply not acceptable. Yeah. And how much money are they going to raise on this? Like, the, the thing I wonder about is just how much of this is going on. Are they just like setting up some kind of bureaucracy to put out estimated values of used cars to collect an amount of money? Like, I think it, I think they say this is going to raise $15 million for government. Yeah, it, it's in that range. And, and of course, when we get into budget estimates, I'll dig into this a little bit more with the finance minister around the revenue side. But, um, you know, when you look at the overall uh, taxes that they collect on, on used vehicles and that, it's it, it's questionable um, it, that their numbers even match up. I mean, you're even on one hand saying that everyone's a criminal, um, but they're not expecting to collect huge amount of actual dollars. So, um, you know, their words and actions aren't matching up. They say they're there for, for low- and middle-income families, yet they're, they're taking direct measures that are 100% punitive uh, to those exact families. Okay, Peter Millibar, thank you for coming on today. Great, thank you so much. In British Columbia, police have launched an annual crackdown on distracted driving. Also, police teaming up with ICBC to tell the public, leave your phone alone. Don't even think. How about touching that cell phone? Because we will catch you. That's what the police are saying. And they have lots of new ways they can catch distracted drivers in the act. We talked about this on the show yesterday with a police officer from the VPD traffic unit. Yeah, we can dress up as panhandlers to catch people. We can even catch you in the drive through line at McDonald's. Believe it or not. Yeah, you're going in the drive through line to pick up your Big Mac. You touch the phone, a cop could come out and and charge you with distracted driving. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kyla Lee, lawyer at Acumen Law. She specializes in traffic law. Hi, Kyla. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. So we talked about this yesterday with Constable Mark Boucher from the Vancouver Police Department. I'll play a few clips of him yesterday, some of the things he had to say. But one of the things he told me was that, you know, the police have got all kinds of ways that they can catch you 
distracted driving and he said some of them are secret he does they don't want to reveal show all their cards here but he said they can dress up as uh, traffic construction flaggers or they can go undercover as a as a homeless person on the street and they can catch you you knew that already though right did the, the police do that a lot uh, they don't do that as much as they did when the law first came into effect, but they are still engaged in sort of the, the costumes and the hiding and all of the clever ways that they find to catch people. And uh, Do you think that's fair? I don't think it's fair. Um, I don't think it's fair because usually when they're doing those things, they're not catching people who are, you know, driving down the road with their phone to their ear or actively texting while in motion. They're doing it at red lights. They're wandering up and down lines of cars looking for people who are quickly glancing at their texts while they're stopped at a light. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like going after fish in a barrel, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's easier to catch people if you can get them at a red light, right? Yeah, Stopping someone who's moving. Exactly. And it's not that hard to find people who are using their phones clearly while their cars are in motion. I mean, all you have to do is sort of drive around and look in people's windows, and you can easily see that every time you're out on the road. Okay, let's play. uh, Let's listen to Constable Mark Boucher on yesterday's show, Kyla, and then I will get your thoughts. So here he is describing some of the methods that police use undercover to catch distracted drivers. Have a listen. You just never know when, when, you know, that panhandler at the median or the flagger the road crew, someone handing you lunch at the, the drive-thru might be a police officer kind of checking for distracted drivers. Um, so uh, typically it's, we're going to see you uh, drive by your heads down and we're going to come up to your window when, when it's uh, possible and, and see you using your phone. So uh, pretty typical enforcement techniques. Okay, at the drive-thru. So you're telling me that if I'm going through the drive-thru, I'm picking up my Big Mac... And I look at my phone, that is technically distracted driving, even if I look at my phone while I'm in the drive-thru line? Uh, Technically, yes, because you are technically on a highway. Okay, Kyla, have you ever had a case like that? Like, I can't imagine, like, imagine being in the drive-thru line, and he said that a police officer, he says that the police officer who hands you your food might be disguised as a fast food worker at a McDonald's hands you your food through the window and then they and then they hand you a ticket for distracted driving are you kidding me wow I have such a big problem with that. To me, it is just so frustrating because, I mean, lots of people now are using things like Apple Pay to try and, you know, do touchless forms of payment. Um, People are using their phones because they can place their order on their phone and then drive to the drive-thru and pick it up at the drive-thru window. And they have to use their phone to show the person at the drive-thru their order number to make sure they get the correct order. The the, Enforcing the law in the drive-thru serves no public safety purpose. I have seen no data or no suggestion publicly that we're seeing a massive increase in serious accidents and injury-related accidents in drive throughs because people are using their phones to pay or to retrieve their orders. Yeah, and the other thing, too, at McDonald's, just as someone who occasionally will go through a McDonald's drive through I know that they now have a, like a customer loyalty app on your phone. So when you go through the drive through <laughs> they will often say, do you have the McDonald's app on your phone for to collect your points on your purchase? So, I mean, you know, at that point, are they not, they're almost encouraging you to, enticing you to break the law? Like you're not allowed to touch your phone in the drive-thru line. 
Well, I mean, there is an arguable case to be made that a drive-through line doesn't fall within the definition of a highway under the well, motor not, vehicle. Not, not according to Constable Boucher on my show yesterday. He said that's technically a highway. I would fight that out with him in court. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, so if, if somebody out there does get racked up for a distracted driving ticket in the drive-through line, uh, you should definitely call Kyla. Let me play another clip here for you for your thoughts. Now, this is one that is frequently cited by the listeners when we talk about this topic, and that is I have talked to people who got a distracted driving ticket while they were stopped at a, a level crossing for a train. So here you have the, you know, the barrier comes down, the train is crossing the road, and some of those trains are super long, take many, many minutes for this train to pass. And guess what? There's a police officer knocking on your door while you're stopped and writes you up for a ticket. Now, I asked Constable Boucher about that yesterday, and he defended that. Listen to what he says here. If you're okay with doing it there, where else are you okay doing it with? And I think, uh, you know, your, your habits will seep into other, other areas of your driving, whether you're, oh, I, I, you know, I can do it while I'm waiting for the train, and I'll just, I'll just quickly te- check a text while I'm, while I'm bombing down the highway. So- Okay, so if you're tempted to check your phone while waiting at a level crossing for a train to pass, you might also be tempted to text while you're bombing down the highway. Your thoughts? I honestly don't think that that's a fair comparison. I think most people can do a a pretty easy assessment of the level of risk in those situations. And, you know, people are capable of gauging risk on the road. It's part of driving. You know that there's no risk when you're in a line of cars waiting for a train. You can not see the end of the train. You know you're going to be there for a while. When you're bombing down the highway, you know, everybody knows that it's dangerous to pick up your phone. It's a completely different situation, and people can separate that in their minds. Yeah, I would think so, too. I mean, especially if, if this is a super long wait you have for at a level crossing for a train. I mean, you'd probably even have your car would be in park. You wouldn't even be moving. But that's no that's no defense in court, though. Right. You would still get even if your car isn't parked, is in park position. You're, you're on the highway. You can still get charged. Right. Yeah, it's only if your car is lawfully parked off the roadway, out of the way of traffic that you right. are entitled to use your phone. All right, talking distracted driving with Kyla Lee. Tons of phone calls here. Karen in Vancouver. Hi, Karen. Go ahead. Oh, hi there. Uh, I follow Kyla on Twitter. She's she's quite entertaining. Um, but I wanted to say I use my Apple Pay and my phone to pay for everything. Uh, McDonald's, uh, Starbucks. I have. I want to ask you this. That's private property. Is it not opening up the vendors for a lawsuit? Because if they're encouraging people to use these devices, and you're—I I just find it astounding that the police would actually waste their time on this when, in fact, the real dangers are people on the road, not in a drive-through. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Well, the the officer I did have on yesterday, Kyla, in in fairness to him, did say that. You know, if someone does is using an app on their phone, the the police will take that into consideration. But your thoughts? I mean, I think that that just demonstrates the absurdity of doing any enforcement there. If it's safe to use yeah. your app, then it's safe to check your text messages. <laughs> right. Okay. And I don't know. It seems to be a, a labor-intensive call for a police officer if they're not going to have to get into a, a discussion about whether you're using an app or whether you're sending a text in the drive through line. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, think about the resources that a police force has to expend to have somebody standing in a drive through window waiting for the one person who picks up their phone to check their messages instead of using the app.
Yeah, let's let's go to Randeep in Abbotsford. Hi, go ahead. Yeah, hey, hi. I just wanted to say, you know, I, I can't believe we're wasting police resources on this kind of stuff when we have such a problem with crime and shootings in our, you know, in our city and stuff. You know, if they, you want to get the crime under control and then waste your time on that kind of thing, fine. But I think that's total waste of time, and it's, it's just a money grab for them, and I, I can't believe they do something like that. Well, I guess the reason they're doing it is because so many people die in BC from distracted driving. So I, I believe the last stat I saw, Kyla, was British Columbia says I think there's an average of 76 deaths a year from distracted driving. Your thoughts? I can guarantee you that none of those were in drive throughs and none of them were waiting for a train. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that's that, that's the point. Joe in Vancouver. Hi Joe, go ahead. Yeah, I agree with the other callers. They're out to lunch with this. It's lazy. Drive-throughs and train crossings. I drive for a living from Burnaby to Port Kells four times a day. I'm on the highway all the time. It's not hard to spot people on their phones. And second of all, there's so many cars nowadays where you can't even change like the angle of your seat without using the infotainment system. So it's just it's ridiculous. Okay, somebody said that to me yesterday, Kyla. Thank you for the call. That what about some of the interactive touch screens you see in a lot of new vehicles now? Like, you know, like a new Tesla vehicle looks like it's made by NASA, you know, with the the, the digital readout on the and you got it's a touch screen, right? Is that distracted driving if you use that? It's not distracted driving under the legislation because anything that's part of the components of the vehicle is accepted from uh, the law. But I think the law does need to change because those screens allow you to play games. They allow you to do send messages and type and receive messages. Uh, the technology has advanced beyond what the law actually contemplated when it was written. And it's time for the government to revisit this law and take a serious look at what is working and what is not. Jessica on the line in Surrey. Hi, Jessica. Go ahead. Jessica, can you hear me? Okay, I feel like I can hear her, but I can Jessica. Okay, we'll put her on hold to see if we can see if we can connect. Let's try Rick in Port Moody. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kyla. Uh, I am curious. What about turning your vehicle off and taking your your key out of the ignition? Um, does that all of a sudden make you a, a non your vehicle uh, you know unusable? So is that a uh, is that an issue? So if you're waiting somewhere like a lineup, McDonald's or even at a at a train crossing or, or a light in general, like uh, what happens there? Okay, if you take your key out of the ignition, Kyla, does that make a difference? It doesn't make a difference. Unless you're actually pulled off the road and in a parking spot, you still cannot use your phone even if you turn the car off and are stopped in the middle of the road. Yeah, because I guess it comes down to whether you are still legally on, I guess, what would be defined as a highway, correct? Yeah, it comes down to whether you're defined, uh, you're on what's defined as a highway and whether yeah. you're obstructing traffic. If you're, you know, stopped, your car's turned off because you want to check your message and you don't want to get a ticket, you're posing as much of a risk as you would be if you were using the phone if your car is just sitting in the middle of traffic. Okay, Michelle in North Vancouver. Hi, Michelle, go ahead. Hi. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just have so many things to say. I'm just going to try to keep it limited, but I find it completely offensive that the city leaves our roads decrepit and in disrepair, damaging cars with potholes. They take our, um, our gas tax, dump it into general revenue. They spend money on clearing and uh, maintaining bike lanes 
but they want to go after people in, um, you know, they want to go after, uh, the police are in a little bit of a situation where, you know, they're, they're going after the wrong things here. They're going after pe- peaceful protesters and people on their phones like at a stopped train or through a drive through They need to get their heads on right. The city needs to stop spending money. Okay, okay. Um, on- okay, Michelle, thank you for that call. Uh, I can sort of see the argument about the drive through lane i can certainly see it on being stopped at a level crossing for a long train going by but you know the one i think that is more arguable is the one at the red light so let's say you're stopped at a red light kyla and a police officer sees you touch your phone that's a distracted driving ticket i've heard one argument you know we've all been stopped at a traffic light the light turns green the car ahead of you doesn't move why because they're looking at their phone so you beep your horn and the car in front of you goes whoa they wake up and they realize now they've got to get moving and they step up, they might step on the gas too quickly, maybe not see a pedestrian crossing the crossing that intersection. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Your thought your thought. So I mean that's that's an argument for a distracted drive for a distracted driving ticket in that situation. That is probably the most cogent argument for those types of distracted driving tickets. And of course we see tons of rear end collisions taking place at intersections. Um, but what I would say is that the fine is disproportionate to the level of risk posed in those circumstances. And when you're looking at $368 and four points um, for that level of risk where, you know, you have a minor fender bender, I think that that's out of step with the conduct. And again, the law should evolve okay. to reflect what the behavior is. Squeeze in one more. Chris and Langley. Chris, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, just quickly, uh, yeah, you guys keep up the good work on this. The laws definitely have to change. I was uh, stuck at a train for 10 minutes. The cop was watching people run a red light at the train station on Braid. He came up, gave me a distracted driving ticket. I asked him, how is this dangerous? How am I in, in any way dangerous? Has, have you ever seen an accident involved where the person's sitting at a train station? Like that? He says, I know it's far-fetched. Here's your ticket. Have a nice day. All right. Thanks Thanks for sharing that. Kyla, what's, what's your website address if people want to get in touch with you? Uh, people can find me at kylalee.ca or vancouvercriminallaw.com. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the soaring cost of real estate now. Prices for homes going through the roof again in Metro Vancouver and beyond, including in once affordable areas like the Fraser Valley, for example. Check out some of these numbers now. The benchmark price of a detached home in the Fraser Valley, this is where you used to go, oh, buy a detached home. Yeah, it's more affordable there. $1.7 million for a detached home in the Valley. In Metro Vancouver, a detached home, over $2 million. Obviously, it's unaffordable for non-millionaires. You can't afford to buy a detached home anywhere in the region for most people. What about a townhome? Okay, the average price of a townhome in Metro Vancouver, now over one million dollars what are we going to do about this we're talking about this for years governments have taken many measures nothing really seems to work check this one out the government now proposing a cooling off period they want to cool off this overheated housing market how would they do that they would bring in a cooling off period to allow people to back out of a deal to buy a home Finance Minister Selena Robinson saying they want to do this to give buyers the time to make the right decision and maybe back out of the deal. The BC Real Estate Association doesn't like this. 
They say that the government should not bring in this cooling off period. They have other ideas. Uh, the government, though, saying the BC Real Estate uh, Association has got a vested interest here to keep the mar- market hot. Let's talk about how we can get more homes built that people can actually afford. Got two great guests for you, Dylan Kruger, Delta City Councilor. Pleased to welcome him back. Hey, D- Dylan. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Paul Sullivan is also here. Paul is with the Business Tax Alliance. Paul, thank you for doing this again. Good morning, Mike. Okay, thank you to both of you. Dylan Kruger, let me go to you first. What about this cooling off period the provincial government is has in mind? What do you think of that idea? Well, look, Mike, I support measures to increase transparency in the housing market. I support enhanced consumer protection initiatives. But let's not kid ourselves here. This will do nothing to address the housing affordability crisis, and it will do nothing to help families in our region who are desperately looking to put a roof over their heads. We have to address the root cause of the issue. The root cause is lack of housing supply, and the solution, frankly, is to overhaul a broken local government approval process that is holding up thousands of units of housing uh, on planners' desks across Metro Vancouver. Okay, I guess the government is saying, though, that a cooling-off period would allow people, prevent people from making a rash decision to get into an overheated market, especially with interest rates going up now. It's going to cost more to borrow for a mortgage. But you don't think that's the case? Well, and look, we can have that conversation. If this is about consumer protection, I think some updates uh, are probably a good thing. But if the government is trying to say that this is actually a housing affordability initiative, I just call the bluff. I mean, we seem to be circling around the issue. We call it a housing crisis. You've seen we've had a health crisis for the last three years. We've seen governments of all sizes move mountains. If this is actually a crisis, we need to take some pretty radical steps to address the, the, the lack of supply. And I just don't see the urgency from the province or, frankly, from most local governments. Okay, Paul Sullivan, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I agree. This is going to do nothing to uh, cool the market. In fact, I'm going to tell you it's going to cause prices to escalate further because if I'm a purchaser, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to make five offers on five different homes, and I'm going to bid a high price to make sure I have a chance or shot at all of them. And then if I tinker around for five or ten days in the cooling off period and decide I don't want one to four, I'm going to take number five. I drop those deals, I go with this deal. It's going to bring this perceived demand that's going to create more offers on homes. It's going to absolutely backfire. Okay, the government under pressure here on this cooling off period, they've proposed the BC Real Estate Association doesn't like it. But let me go back to Dylan. So, Dylan, when you put that to the government and they say, well, the BC Real Estate Association doesn't like this cooling off period the government turns around and says, well, of course they don't. They've got a vested interest in keeping the market hot. What do you think of that argument? Well, look, I think everyone has a, a vested interest. Every every advocacy group, every homeowner, every renter has a vested interest. My vested interest is seeing uh, people that are looking for housing in our community get into to homes. And I think there's a hierarchy of needs in our region, and housing has to be number one. I, I'm looking at actually finding solutions to the problem. I think this is the latest in, look, we've, we've had a lot of demand suppression tactics from government over the last number of years, a number of new taxes that have come into place. We've got all these measures happening and prices continue to go up. We seem to be circling around the issue, looking at everything except for, gosh, maybe we really need to refocus what the mission creep of local government has been uh, and start actually, you know, forcing municipalities to follow their own plans and get their housing projects approved. Okay, I think that's a really good point because it's a two-sided equation here, right? It's supply and demand. And yeah, we do see a lot of supply side prescriptive measures by government. And this is another one. Let's cool the market off. Let's cool off demand. 
But let's talk about that supply issue, Paul. And we've talked about this before. Do we need to just get more homes built on the market? Will that improve things? There's no question. I mean, we, we have no choice. Look at the m- migration coming from interprovincial, international, temporary workers. I mean, we're going to double, triple the input level of people coming into this province that we've seen ever. We are building office towers downtown, which are filling up with Microsoft. They're filling up with Amazon. These people can't buy homes. They're going to rent homes. Any available rental product is going to be gone. And the choices between rental and purchase are going to be gone, too. So you better get supply on both sides of the market. You better start talking to the market and stop listening to left-wing academics that have no vested interest in the outcome of, of this marketplace. Okay, Paul, how do we get that done? How do we get more stuff built that people can actually afford? You pre-zone areas, you have pre-approved development forms, you follow provincial targets. I mean, the provincial government has talked about targeted uh, geographic areas for density based upon investments in infrastructure, transit. And when municipalities perform, they get rebates. They get, they get bonuses from the provincial government for providing homes in targeted areas in a rapid basis that warrants the investment of infrastructure. Okay, okay Dylan Kruger, your thoughts? Yeah, and I'll give you an example, Mike. I, I totally agree with what Paul was saying. There's, there's a legislative proposal from the province to, and this is actually a good one, uh, to remove the public hearing requirement for rezonings that are in compliance with the official community plan that a city's put in place. The rationale being the city has already done the work. We've already done the engagement with the community. We've got a plan in place. When you have a project that is that aligns with that plan, uh, we should not be finding opportunities to hold that up for years and years of additional consultation. We're in consultation paralysis. We should be moving those forward. The biggest issue with that piece of legislation, though, is it's optional for municipalities. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any municipalities that are going to say, yes, I would like to do less consultation with my community. This is where we need the leadership <laughs> in the province to say, yes, we actually need to make this a requirement. Okay. The other one that's been on the table recently in this debate is this idea of a home equity tax. So place an annual tax on homes worth over a million dollars, which is basically every home, an annual tax, and you use that money to build affordable housing. Now, this was proposed by one of those academics you were talking about, Paul. Paul Kershaw here from UBC. He was a guest on an earlier show. So here he is making the pitch for that. That's like a large pot of gold. That isn't a nest egg. That is a wealth windfall. You know, if I'd accumulated that half million dollars over 10, 15 years of work, then great is my savings. But this is, only, yeah. this is happening in our housing system, and we're tolerating it. And we are, we're saying, oh, that housing, that person who's nest egg now just grew and grew and grew, and they're counting on it, and that that should be somehow not open for any further conversations. Okay, so Paul Kershaw there from UBC. Paul Sullivan, your thoughts on that? Like he's saying that the rise in home values, if people are fortunate enough to own a home, they've seen the equity in their home go up dramatically. He's saying like you're sitting on a pot of gold, and that should not be off limits from the tax man. But your thoughts? Well, I mean, I I, I disagree publicly many times on this point, and we're going to start tackling um, that. Why don't we start tackling his pension fund and, and, and taking back uh, his gains on that as well? We, we, we don't have a, a shortage of taxation. We've got plenty of taxation here in BC. We have a shortage of homes. We have billions and billions of investment dollars that want to build homes right now. We're not getting them approved. That's the yeah. problem. 
All right, welcome back to the show, talking affordable housing with my guests, Dylan Kruger and Paul Sullivan. Lots of phone calls. Rosa Leah in Port Moody. Hi, Rosa. Hi. Um, I wanted to tell you guys, last Sunday I went to look at a house in Coquitlam that was listed for $1.299 million. Complete needs a complete gut. And when I showed up, there was about 45 people looking at it. So oh. I said, never mind, I'm out of here. The next day... The, the real estate agent announced that he had 22 offers and the homeowners oh. were looking at them all. Oh, my. The, that was Monday. On Tuesday, the real estate agent announced that the homeowners have declined all offers and now the house is being sold for $2,079,000. Oh. oh, my goodness. Wow. So <laughs> anybody that's looking in the 1.2 to 1.5 even is bitter and left out. Wow, Rosalia, thank you for that call. Wow, that sums it up. That that paints a picture right there. Dylan, your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking actually, Mike. When people have their life savings and they're they're lining up to go and look at not even their dream home, like like Rosalia was saying. I mean, often it's a it's a teardown or it's a house that's going to need a lot of work, and it's just yeah. watching it get farther and further out of reach. Uh, it's heartbreaking. It's endemic of the crisis that we're in, and we need to take action. Okay, let's squeeze in some more calls here. Dave on the line in Coquitlam. Hi, Dave, go ahead. Hi, how are you? Talking about the home equity tax, I'll tell you my own personal situation. I'm retired. I make about 120 a year from investments. Oh, I'm rich. But if my house, if I, that tax comes in, it's going to cost me 17000 a year. So I've got to pay tax on that. So that's $25,000 a year that it's going to cost me. And this guy at UBC that says, oh, well, you won the lottery. Well, how yeah. I won the lottery is I bought a ticket. And I feel <laughs> sorry for people that can't do it. But don't come after people that have worked hard all their lives and happen to be in a market where the government has allowed the prices to go sky high with all their manipulation. Okay, thank you for the call. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of people in, in the caller's position, Paul. But uh, I don't think this home equity tax keeps getting kicked around, but I'm not sure there's any politician in the country who's got the actual jam to do it. But your thoughts? Yeah, no. I mean, we've heard the, we've heard Trudeau talk about it. Uh, I, it it's, it's, it's dynamite. I don't think anybody's going to touch it because yeah. it, it's the wrong. People have put their life and sacrificed into their homes. And just because the value's up today, what about when it goes down? Because when these interest rates go up to 5 6 7%, which they're going yeah. to in the next 12, 18, 24 months, that value goes down. Am I going to get a check back? Like, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to Carol right. on the line in Surrey. Hi, Carol. Go ahead. Hi. I just wanted to let you know what I see happening in our neighborhood in Surrey. We've got uh, a lot of teardowns happening. Um, mm-hmm. Lovely little ranches that have been fixed up to be sold, listed at 1.2 or 4 uh, so-called affordable, and then being torn down, and it's happened beside us and behind us. We've got these maximum built homes. Uh, they get built, they get lived in for a year, and then they get sold for two points five and up. So I don't know how that helps the affordable housing situation. Okay, thank you for that, Dylan. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and and I and I see that a lot too. I think you can fix that through the zoning process. If if municipalities want to look at it, you can zone for 
uh, more and smaller houses. You can still maintain the single-family uh, feeling of your lot, but I'd, I'd like to see more and smaller, more affordable houses rather than some of the, the larger ones that are coming in. At the same time, we have to recognize that the housing needs are different for different types of people in our communities, and there are multi-generational families that do need those larger homes. So it's a tough question, but I agree. I, I'd like to see more of the smaller homes as well. Mike and Langley on the open line. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. What I want to know is we have a housing shortage. I know three people that have bought houses, and they had pre-existing houses on them. They tear them down to build another one, but they have to, like, decommission a perfectly good house. Like, that's a house a family could be living in. Nothing wrong with it. They have to destroy it so they can build another one on, like, five or ten-acre property. Like, it makes no sense. Paul, Paul, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, we've got to get we got to get over nimbyism. We've got to get into density. We've got to get into yeah. di- more diverse housing types and rapid approval processes. It's only way we're getting through this, guys. Yeah, I mean, we've got that limited land mass. They're not making any more land to build on, so it just seems like densification or building higher seems to be one of the the few real options here. But we just have a minute left, guys. Like Dylan, for your thoughts. You've got a, a housing minister here in, in the province, David Eby, who's threatened to do a Bigfoot here on municipal governments and take over local permitting processes to get more stuff built. Do you think he should do that or leave municipalities alone? I think that we really do need government to step in and overhaul the municipal approval process through the Local Government Act. I'd like to see changes that still give municipalities the power to direct where in their municipalities they'd like to see density, but I think we're well past the time where we can say whether or not we need to see enhanced density. If we want to see more housing in our community, if we want to see this housing crisis go away, we need to build more density in our communities.